There was, back in the 1800s, this guy, he was a famous philosopher and a vocal atheist whose influence is still felt in our culture today. His name is Frederick Nietzsche. You've probably heard of him. If you've heard of Nietzsche, let me see your hand so you know exactly what I'm talking about. Guy died in like 1900. He lived from 1850 to 1900. And to this very day, people know about him. He's most famous for this saying, three words, still quoted to this day, God is dead. Wow, the arrogance of a statement like that. But Nietzsche wasn't saying he personally killed him. Nietzsche was saying, modern man is just so enlightened now that the God myth is really no longer necessary. We can do fine without God. He was a crutch. We made him up to help us through the dark times, but we're too sophisticated now. We don't need him anymore. Well, I think Nietzsche was wrong. Not only was he known for saying God is dead, let me read to you a quote from an article I read about his philosophy. Listen to what it says very carefully. Nietzsche announced the death of God, arguing that the traditional source of ultimate and transcendent value, God, no longer mattered in modern culture. Let me read to you a couple of those words. The source of ultimate value no longer mattered. Now, so he's famous for saying God is dead, right? But that's only part of his philosophy. He was also, I don't know if I'd call him the father of, but definitely the spokesman of what's known as nihilism. And if you take any class in philosophy, you're going to read about nihilism. Nihilism is the philosophy that basically says there is no meaning to life. There's no purpose at all. We just happen to be here. And that led naturally to another philosophy known as fatalism. Nihilism says there's no reason, there's no hope, there's no purpose. Fatalism says, well, if there's no reason and no purpose, let's just put a bullet to our head and be done with it. Let's go kill, rape, pillage, plunder, whatever we want to do because there's no reason to life. There's no sense of value. There's no ultimate yes, right, wrong. There's no God. There's no heaven. There's no hell. You know, if there's no ultimate sense of value, there's no such thing as morality. Morality has to be based on a standard. You pull out the standard, morality is meaningless. Nihilism leads to fatalism. But nihilism in itself is hopelessness. The traditional source of ultimate and transcendent, I can't even say the word right now, value, God no longer matters. So Nietzsche, all the nihilistic philosophers since then and now, decided, well, wait a minute. Without God in the picture, there's no hope. There's no anchor for purpose at all. So one group of people went off the fatalism route, and the other group of people said, let's have hope anyway. We have no reason for it, but let's have hope anyway, because the alternative is just evil. So it's kind of like removing all joy from life and just saying, let's be happy anyway. What you've got to understand is, I'm not telling you as a pastor that's the consequence of the philosophy. They know that's the consequence of the philosophy. We know that declaring God dead removes all hope from the universe. But what the heck, be hopeful anyway. Wow, it's crazy. Well, let me tell you something. As you well know, preaching to the choir here, God is not dead. 
What you also might not know, well, I'm sure you do know, Nietzsche is dead. He didn't live very long. So, God is dead. Uh, no, I'm not, but dude, you are. <laughs> and now he knows God isn't dead. And I'm sure he's not rejoicing in that fact. I thought it was kind of funny. God is, not de God is dead, Nietzsche. Nietzsche is dead, God. First time I saw that, it just cracked me up. But then I thought on it, and I realized it didn't crack God up. Because God says in Ezekiel 33, As I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their evil ways. God doesn't like to say, Hey, I get to send another evil person to hell. Yay me, score. God doesn't want anybody going to hell. And when a wicked person doesn't repent and dies, that does not please God any more than it pleases you. Nietzsche said God is dead. His philosophy was close. He was circling the truth. But, you know, there's a lot of things that circle the truth. Toilet bowls are one of them. <laughs> he was circling the truth, but he never quite got there. God is not dead, but Nietzsche thought he was because he couldn't relate to him. He couldn't see him, couldn't feel him, couldn't hear him. Problem wasn't that God was dead. The problem was that Nietzsche was dead, spiritually. To a dead man, he can't sense true life, true light. Dead man doesn't see light. Dead man doesn't see hope. So the problem isn't that God was dead. The problem is that Nietzsche was dead. And he didn't realize he was dead. He thought it was God. But it was Nietzsche. The Bible says we're all the living dead. We're the walking dead. We are zombies, according to the Bible. We walk around animated, but our spirits are all shriveled up and basically have no life in them. And that's why the Bible says we need to be born again. We need spiritual life. We are the walking dead. We need something to spark our hearts alive. And like that new movie that's out that I haven't seen called Warm Bodies, this guy sees a beautiful girl, he's a zombie, and yet his heart gets born again because of the beauty of this lady, and love saves the day. That's beautiful. It's so close to the truth. When our heart sees the love of Jesus, and we choose to follow him, then our heart comes alive, and it's born again, and we're no longer zombies. God wasn't dead. Nietzsche was dead. But I told you, he was circling the truth in many ways. Because God, I mean... God told ancient Israel that he was going to die someday. Now, some of you are thinking, Steve, you're nuts. Just bear with me for a few minutes. God is a spirit. Spirit can't die. So how can God die? I want to take you back pre-Christianity, before you know what you know, and just put you in the mind of ancient Israel. Okay? Here's what they knew about God. God was an almighty, powerful, benevolent spirit being who created everything and is sovereign. And he can smash you or bless you, whatever he wants to do, but he prefers to bless. Now, in light of that, oh, and they knew this too. God is so amazing and powerful and holy, we can't come near to him. His presence would vaporize us. We just can't handle his presence. Now, with that in mind, listen to what Zechariah said in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. This is God talking. They will look on me whom they have pierced, 
and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. So you're reading the prophet Zechariah, and God says, I will be pierced. Well, that's not the best translation. The Hebrew word is used only 11 times, and in most of those instances, it's best translated stabbed with a sword. People who are killed with a sword, same Hebrew word. So it says, they will look upon me whom they have pierced. Well, that's gentle. It'll look, they'll look upon me who is stabbed to death with a sword. That's really what the implication is there. Wow. God stabbed with a sword? That's just silly. He's a spirit that we can't even approach. And if you touch a spirit with a sword, it wouldn't work anyway. And yet, God is saying, he will be stabbed to death with a sword. He will be pierced. What a bizarre passage of scripture, they must have thought. And then after it says, they will look on me whom they have pierced, it says, they will mourn for him. So he's talking in the first person. They will look upon me whom they have pierced and mourn for him. Well, if God's being pierced, why would somebody else be mourned? This is very bizarre. And then this him he's talking about is identified with the words firstborn and son. Very interesting. So how do you pierce God? And then, even if you can pierce God, how does that result in mourning for somebody else? Specifically, somebody called a firstborn son. So here you are, thousands of years ago, reading this passage of Scripture, saying, "Why this is crazy. This is bizarre. It makes no sense. Well, the only way God can be pierced is if he takes on physical form. He's a spirit. So it's not too big a leap in logic to think if God's going to be stabbed, he's got to become a human first. Now, in Judaism today, if I were to tell a Jewish person God became a human, they'd say, that's blasphemy. God can't become a human. I've actually had that conversation with, with Orthodox and observant Jewish people before. I say, yeah, God has become a human. And they say, God can't become a human. And then my response is, God can't become a human? What else can't God do? Because they don't want to ever say God can't do something, but they just did. Well, I don't mean God can't become a human. He's God. He can do whatever he wants, but he never would. You know God so well, you could tell me what he would and wouldn't do? Yes, I know he would never do that. Do you realize he has done it throughout the Torah, throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Jewish Bible? God has appeared in human form? No, he hasn't, Steve. Oh, yes, he has. Show me. I'm glad you asked. Let me show you. So I open up to Genesis, the first book in the Torah, and I go to chapter 18, and I read the following. The Lord, this is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. This is Jehovah. This is God. No question about who we're talking about. The Lord appeared to Abraham. Okay, so now we know Abraham sees the Lord, but what form did he take? The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre, while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing there. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. And he said, let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way. Now that you've come to your servant, very well, they answered, do as you say. Then verse 10, then the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. 
and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. So here's what we know. God appears to Abraham. There's three men there. They have dinner with him. And one of those men says to Abraham, I'm coming back next year, and your wife's going to have a son. How old is Sarah? 89. Abraham, 99. Oh, I'll be back next year, and Sarah's going to have a son. Well, Sarah's in the tent. Walls are thin. She's listening to this, and she just starts laughing. Abraham and Sarah were already old and well-advanced in years, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing, I'd say. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I'm worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is there, what else can't God do? Same question. Oh, you think I can't give a 90-year-old woman a baby? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. By the way, those two other men, they left there, they went off to Sodom, and they were identified as two angels who rescued Lot and his family before Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. So God appeared in human form with two angels in human form, had a meal with Abraham, and said he'd be back. So when I go to Zechariah and it says God's going to be pierced, I say the only way that could happen is if he takes on human form. Well, God would never do that. Uh, he would, and he has, and he will from that time frame. And it wasn't just once in Genesis 18 where God took on human form. He did it several times in the Bible. So Abraham has a son, Isaac. Isaac has Jacob and Esau. Nice family. Jacob and Esau didn't get along so well. Esau was going to kill Jacob because Jacob got the birthright, the inheritance. So Jacob, being the smart man that he was and the weaker of the two, fled. And he moved away for like 14, 20 years, I don't know, a long time. And he decided, God told him it's time to go home. You could go back to your inheritance. You're, you're starting Israel, man. You can't be staying out here. You've got to go back and do your job. He's the patriarch, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. The 12 tribes came from him. Time to go home. So he's on his way home, and he's praying to God, God, you know what? My brother swore to kill me last time I saw him. He's big, he's powerful, he's got an army. So he's praying. And then the Bible says this guy appears to him, to Jacob, while he's praying, and wrestles with him. What a, what a random passage of Scripture. And a man appears with him and wrestles with him. I'd like to know how that even happened. Did he just, like, turn around and somebody went, Rah! and jumped on him? Or was there a guy across the brook and said, what are you looking at? He said, well, what are you looking at? I'm looking at you, and you're ugly. Your mama, boom. I don't know. Why did they start fighting? I have no idea. But they were fighting. This is the first wrestling match recorded in biblical history. And actually, I know a little bit about fighting. And this was actually the first jujitsu <laughs> in world history. So, <laughs> the guy says to Jacob, whoever this mysterious guy is, he says, let me go. He's got him in a hole, man, headlock or something. He said, let me go. He says, I'm not going to let you go unless you bless me. Who is this guy who can bless the patriarch of Israel? And how does he dare wrestle with somebody who can bless him? That's, that man, that's... There's a, there's only, I only know one word for that. That's chutzpah. 
That's the word that says, are you kidding me? You're, you're, you're putting a headlock on somebody who can bless you? Now that's a real way to get a blessing. He said, I'm not going to let you go unless you bless me. Then the guy says, what's your name? He said, Jacob. He said, no, it's not. Not anymore. Now your name's going to be Israel. So this is the guy that changes the whole name and names the entire most important people group on the planet. He says, because as a prince, you've wrestled with God and man and have prevailed. And then during this wrestling match, the being, the guy, touched Jacob's thigh and put it out of joint. So Jacob's holding on to this guy with a dislocated leg, and he will not let go. And he says, you've wrestled with God and man, and you have prevailed. Then Jacob makes a sacrifice, and he calls the place the face of God, because I have seen God face to face, and my life is spared. Who is he wrestling? To this day, okay, this happened, let's see. This was uh, before Moses. This was like 18, 1900 BC, okay? What's that? How many years ago is that? 4,000 years ago that this happened? To this day, Orthodox Jews will not eat the part of the animal that represents the dislocated thigh of Jacob. They knew who he was wrestling with, even though they won't say it, they know. It's buried within our culture is what I'm trying to say. Jacob wrestled with God that day. God took on human form. Jacob passed the test. He was blessed. So when we get to Zechariah and God says, I'm going to be stabbed someday, that's not so bizarre as you might think. He's taken on human form in the past. He can take it on again and get stabbed. In order to teach this, there has to be biblical precedent and I've just given it to you. But not only is there biblical precedent about God getting stabbed or God turning human, there's also prophecy. We got precedent and prophecy. The Bible says, besides Zechariah, that God would die someday. If I can put it that way, it's half right. The human part that takes on flesh will die. Put it that way. Prophecy and precedent that God can become a human, precedent that he has, and prophecy from their standpoint that he will again. Our history, their future. Let me read to you the prophecy that they could have known about, about God being coming to this planet as a human. Uh, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah says, a baby's going to be born someday, and his name is going to be called the Mighty God, the Prince of Peace. Well, this is going to be some baby. And it goes on to identify him clearly with the Messiah. This will be the Messiah. It says, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So Isaiah says, God's going to be born someday, and he'll be the Messiah. He doesn't say it that clearly, but that's what he says. A baby will be born, his name will be called the Mighty God, 
and he will rule over the house of David and all of Israel and the rest of the world. So, Zechariah quotes God. God speaks through Zechariah. And he says, I will die someday. The only way that could possibly happen is if he takes on human form. To quote him, they will look upon me whom they have pierced. And then he says, but they will mourn for him, somebody else. As one mourns for an only begotten son. You know as well as I do that there's only one candidate in all of human history who's the only begotten son of God who can be called him and God at the same time be God and yet the Son of God at the same time, who died for our sins. And on that cross, he was pierced no less than three times. His hands, his feet, and his side with the spear to confirm his death. They will look upon me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only begotten son. Well, the piercing has happened. I don't know that the morning has happened yet. I think that happens when he comes back riding on the clouds, shining like the sun at the trumpet call. When we lift up our voice, I think that's when it happens. Well, you know the answer to this, but I have to finish the picture for those who might not and wrap it up and give you a nice package here. Why did God become a human? Why did he have to die? What was the point of all that? Zechariah answers that question too. He tells us God dies, and then he tells us why. Zechariah 13, verse 1. On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. Where did the fountain come from? The piercing. It's the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all sin. I just quoted another part of the Bible. That's why he had to die. It was the only way to save us from our sin. And then a few verses later, and this ties to a lesson a couple weeks ago, it says this. If someone asks him, what are these wounds in your hands? He will answer, the wounds I was given at the house of my friends. Wow. At the house of my friends. This is how my friends treated me. Jesus the Messiah is the Son of God. He's God in human form. He was crucified as a sacrifice for our sins. And he's coming back to spend eternity with us, those of us that believe in him and have dedicated our lives to his service. If you've not yet done that, I urge you to do so. That's why we're here. That's what it's all about. That's the meaning of life. That's the whole purpose of your existence, to make a decision about Jesus Christ to be redeemed by him and choose to follow him out of your own free will because of the love that he has for you. That's it. That's that's the meaning to life. And if you've not made that decision, I urge you, consider it with all of your mind, all of your heart. Please join me in prayer. Lord God, I made that decision and I remake it every day. I definitely want to be a follower of Jesus. And I pray for those who are not, those listening to the message today, that you would touch their heart, that they would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are real, that you love them, and you will hold them accountable for their decision one way or the other. We pray against 
the darkness of Nietzsche, the hopelessness and despair of his philosophy, and pray that you would shine the light of the returning Christ into the hearts of those who will find you. For it's in his great name that we pray. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and grant you his peace. God bless you all. See you Wednesday night.